This is the Terry and Jesse Show. We invite you to this holy hour of power. I promise you this uh, this hour will not be low-energy Catholic radio. We're two Catholics with a Ph.D. in common sense. My partner Terry is out doing some apostolic work. The man never ceases to work for the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the Terry and Jesse Show, here's where we engage the culture of death with prayer, fasting, and full-contact Catholicism. Our program's not right versus left. It is right versus wrong, and this is where Catholicism and culture intersect. Today is the feast day of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and all the saints uh, that we invoke, we ask them to pray for us. What do we know about St. Cyril? St. Cyril was the Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. He's remembered in the East as a pillar of the faith and the seal of all the fathers. He devoted many writings to interpreting sacred scripture and proclaiming faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ. When Nestorius, the heretic, uh, Bishop of Constantinople, corrected the people's devout way of, of calling Mary the Theotokos, or God-bearer, St. Cyril corrected him. St. Cyril reminded Nestorius, a Catholic priest, he says, it is essential to explain the teaching and interpretation of the faith to the people in the most irreproachable way and to remember that those who cause scandal even to even to only one of the little ones who believe in Christ will be subjected to an unbearable punishment. After Nestorius rebuffed Cyril's teachings, the Council of Ephesus in 431 condemned Nestorian Christology. St. Cyril of Alexandria died in 444 uh, A.D. St. Cyril of Alexandria, pray for us. He's also the saint that told us uh, that the purpose of prayer is communication with God. Let's go on to our soul food section because this is, uh, this is really the staple of our show. It's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and not only proclaiming it, but living it. We have to be Catholics that, are not, that don't just talk the talk, but we have to walk the walk. And so today's gospel, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, St. Matthew writes, When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other shore. A scribe approached and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens and birds of the skies have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But Jesus answered him, Follow me and let the dead bury the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus Christ, first of all, he shows us here that we're not going to take anything with us. Your house, your car, anything you have in your closet, no money. We take nothing with us into eternity. And Christ showed us in his humanity by living here, basically in abject poverty. He says, Foxes have dens and birds of the skies have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. In other words, our Lord Jesus Christ is showing us here what we call self-detachment. Self-detachment, which means what? That's exactly what the Catholic faith is all about. Little by little, day by day, we're learning to detach ourselves from everything. Here's what St. Cyril of Jerusalem says about today's gospel. He says, Earnestly to follow Christ is confessedly profitable to salvation. But he who wishes to be counted worthy of such great glory must, I say, bear his cross. And what is it to bear the cross? It is to die to the world by denying its, its empty distractions and abandoning a carnal and pleasure-loving life. For it is written, Do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world is sensual, enticement for the eyes, and a pretentious life. And again, St. Cyril of, uh, of Alexandria writes, Do you not know that to be a lover of the world, a lover of the world means enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a lover of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The one, therefore, whose choice it is to be with Christ, 
loves that which is admirable and profitable for salvation. But let him hearken to our words. Remove that which separates you from Christ. Break down the enmity. Burst open the hedge that is between, for then you will be with Christ. St. Cyril Alexandria, this eminent uh, Christian figure, he writes also, Christ says, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. The simple meaning of the passage is as follows, that the beasts and birds have dens and dwellings, but I have nothing to offer of those things which are the objects of general pursuit. For I have no place to dwell and rest myself and lay my head. But the inner and secret significance of the passage is attained by the more profound thoughts. For our Lord seems to mean by the foxes and birds, those wicked and cunning and impure powers, the herds of demons. For they are so called, they are, they are called as such in many places in the scriptures. Expel the beasts, hunt out the foxes, drive away the birds, free your hearts from their impurity in order that the Son of Man may find a place in you to lay his head. The Word of God who was incarnate and became man, he in whom Christ dwells as a temple, not of one of those false gods, named so, but of him who by nature and in truth is God. For we have been taught to say that we are the temple of the living God. St. Cyril of Alexandria, pray for us. That's one of the, that's one of the benefits that we as Catholics have. We have this theological giants that we can tap into and read what they've said about Christ, about the scriptures. As Catholics, uh, you know, we don't appeal to, to these uh, Johnny-come-lately uh, theologians. We go back all the way to the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. And we take a look at what some of these theological giants and their reflections upon the scriptures. What a gift it is to be a Catholic. And what a weekend we've had. By the way... July is the month we honor the, the precious blood of Jesus, but we're still, we're still in June. So this is still the sacred heart of Jesus. The month of uh, June is the sacred heart of Jesus. And uh, by the way, you can support the show by sharing the full show link at vmpr.org. And you can also find us on social media at VMPR, at VMPR Radio and our YouTube channel called Full Sheen Ahead. Share us with your friends and evangelize everyone you love. So we've had a couple of nights of rage. Members of the domestic terrorist group Antifa chanted burn it down outside the Supreme Court on Friday night, hours after the overthrow of Roe versus Wade. They started saying, they were, they were chanting, if we don't get it, burn it down. The, the Antifa uh, demonstrators chanted. Also, um, you also had people from... Uh, Ruth Sentis and Jane's Revenge. In another chance, the leftist demonstrators, they were saying, every city, every town, burn the precinct to the ground. So that's what happens when the left doesn't get uh, their way. And they usually do get their way, by the way. But they didn't get their way this time. The Supreme Court, because you had faithful Catholics there, uh, gave the right decision. And the left is going absolutely bonkers. The Biden administration's Department of Education on Thursday proposed changes to Title IX that would forbid discrimination on the basis of students' sexual orientation or gender identity. The rule change would force schools throughout the country to open up female-only programs, restrooms, locker rooms, and sporting facilities, and competitions to males who say they are female. Hmm. Also, Catholic News. Cardinal Walter Casper, he's a liberal cleric known to be close with Pope Francis. He blasted the controversial Synodal Way movement among German bishops. That's surprise, surprise. Pope Francis and many conservative prelates have criticized German bishops as they have pushed pro-LGBTQ ideas and major changes to church practices and doctrines under the umbrella of the Synodal Way. Well, Cardinal Casper, who's a, he's a man of the left, he's now warning that the German bishops have gone too far and that if they commit to their radical proposals, it would be tantamount to a collective resignation of the bishops. Walter Casper also added, constitutionally, the whole thing could only be called a coup. That's an attempted coup. That's surprising. Uh, even somebody like Cardinal Walter Casper 
Even the German bishops are too far to the left for him. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse show. I'm going to be talking about it in the next segment. Because this is, again, this is the month of the sacred heart of Jesus. I know for the, for the leftists, it's the, it's the LGBTQ month. Not for us. We don't promote sin. We don't celebrate sin. We call people to repentance on Catholic radio. That's what we do. We pray for their conversion and call for their repentance. We don't celebrate sin. And we don't promote it. For us as Catholics, the month of May, excuse me, uh, the month of June, is the month dedicated to the sacred heart of Jesus. And I'll be talking about different aspects of the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, which is... uh, which is something that's making a comeback, which is good. It's good to see that. A lot of tradition is coming back. And then I'm going to talk about also, in the third and fourth segment, something kind of interesting. You've all heard the phrase, I'm spiritual, not religious. I want to do a deep dive and take a look at what does that mean? I'm spiritual, but not religious? Are you kidding You're listening to the Terry and Jesse show. We'll be right back. Don't change that dial. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, Here's Terry and Jesse. Why is the sacred heart of Jesus on fire? Have you ever asked yourself that question? The image of the sacred heart of Jesus is directly from a private revelation of St. Mar- Margaret Mary Alacoque, but it's also very biblical. Let me, let me show you some of the biblical connections to the sacred heart of Jesus. We know that many depictions of the Sacred Heart show flames coming from the top of Jesus' heart. And this type of symbolism was not used in the church until the 17th century. When St. Margaret Mary Alacoque had a private revelation of Jesus, she wrote down the words Jesus told her, and he specifically mentions flames coming from his heart. My divine heart, Jesus said, is so inflamed with love for men, and for you in particular, being unable any longer to contain myself, contain contain within itself the flames of its burning charity. It must be spread abroad by your means, and manifests itself to them, mankind, in order to enrich them with the precious graces of sanctification and salvation necessary to withdraw them from the abyss, the abyss of perdition. Close quote. In other words, Jesus Christ told this nun, St. Margaret Mary Lecoque, he takes his heart in his hand, and his heart is, has a, thor- a crown of thorns around, and it's bleeding. And this beating heart, he's, he's essentially telling St. Margaret Mary, tell the whole world, This is how much I love them. My heart is on fire for them. My heart burns with love of all of you man in the human race, especially you, St. Margaret Mary. So let's look at some of the biblical connections of the sacred heart of Jesus. Well, the idea of God being associated with fires is very biblical. Remember that God himself revealed his name to Moses in the midst of a burning bush. Then in Exodus chapter 3 verse 2, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him as a a fire flaming out of a bush. And when he looked, although the bush was on fire, the bush was not consumed. That's in Exodus chapter 3 verse 2. God also preceded them, the Israelites, in the, in the daytime by means of a column of cloud to show them the way to the promised land, and at night by means of a column of fire to give them light. 
That's found in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. Moreover, Jesus used fire to communicate his desire to spread his love for all humanity. Remember when he said in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, he said, I have come to set the earth on fire and how I wish it were already ablaze. And how can we forget the event that happened in the book of Acts chapter 2 where we see that even the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, appeared at Pentecost as tongues of fire. While it may seem strange to see the sacred heart of Jesus on fire, it is a symbol that has biblical connections in addition to its origins from the private revelations of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. The devotion to the Sacred Heart can be seen as early as the 2nd century with St. Justin Martyr and in the 7th century with Pope Gregory the Great. Writers throughout these centuries emphasize the pure sight of Christ as the inexhaustible source from which all graces flow upon mankind and the blood and water as symbols of the sacraments of the Church. With the coming of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and St. Anselm in the 12th century, there was a sudden increase in direct reference to the love of the Sacred Heart for every person redeemed by his passion and death. The focus on the Sacred Heart moved from being a symbol of the sacraments to the symbol of divine love. In contemplation, or the contemplation of the humanity of Christ and His Passion, devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, in particular the Feast of Corpus Christi, which is also this month, it already passed, and the surge of mysticism gave the devotion of the Sacred Heart a new vitality in the Middle Ages. Prior to the revelations of St. Margaret Mary, religious communities, particularly in France, continued to spread devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus throughout the world. The French leaders paved the way for the message given to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. St. Margaret Mary entered the Daughters of the Visitation, founded by St. Francis de Sales and St. Jane Francis de Chantal in 1671. And although devotion to the heart of Jesus was already important in the order prior to St. Margaret Mary's entrance, it would be through her that the public devotion to the Sacred Heart, reparation, consecration, and liturgical feasts would be practically universal in the Catholic Church. During this time, the heresy of Jansenism was spreading like wildfire throughout Europe. The Jansenists instilled fear into the hearts of the faithful Catholics, turning the religion of faith and love into one of pessimism and scrupulosity, teaching that man is completely incapable of disposing himself to the grace offered by God. Frequent communion was also frowned upon by the Jansenist. So in contrast to, to his, or to this, between the years of 1673 and 1675, Jesus appeared to St. Margaret Mary, revealing his divine heart to her. And in one apparition, he told her, quote, My divine heart is so passionately in love with humanity, and with you in particular, that it cannot keep back the pent-up flames of its burning charity any longer. They must burst out through you, close quote. Our Lord mourned the indifference and ingratitude of the greater part of humanity. Christ asked for the communion of reparation on nine First Fridays. He also requested that there be a special liturgical feast for His Sacred Heart in the Universal Church to be celebrated eight days after the solemnity of Corpus Christi. And on that day, he asked for a solemn act of reparation for all the offenses heaped upon him in the Blessed Sacrament. St. Margaret Mary was a cloistered nun, and so to help her carry out her mission entrusted to her, our Lord brought to her St. Claude La Colombière, a Jesuit priest 
He brought her to her to be her spiritual director. He was the first to believe in the revelations of the Sacred Heart of Jesus to St. Margaret Mary, and thanks to his support, her superior also believed and widespread propagation of the devotion of the Sacred Heart in the Universal Church began. From then on, the Jesuits became the chief propagators of the devotion of the Sacred Heart which flourished throughout the subsequent centuries. The Holy See has given this devotion a high place of importance in the Church due not only to the request of Jesus and St. Margaret Mary, but also to the soundness of the doctrine and its timeliness in rekindling love and trust in the merciful heart of our Savior. Pope Pius XI, in his encyclical, Miserantissimus Redemptor, writes about the meaning of the vision of the Sacred Heart. Here are the twelve promises that our Lord gave to St. Margaret Mary Alacotus, French nun. He said, Promise number one, I will give them all the graces necessary for their state in life. That's for those people that have a picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in their home, blessed by a Catholic priest, and do the prayers of consecration. Number two, our Lord says, I will establish peace in their families. Number three, I will comfort them in their trials. Number four, I will be their secure refuge during life and above all in death. Number five, I will shed abundant blessings on all their undertakings. Number six, Sinners will find in my heart an infinite ocean of mercy. Number seven, lukewarm souls will become fervent. Number eight, fervent souls will rapidly grow in holiness and perfection. Number nine, I will bless every place where an image of my heart shall be exposed and honored. Number, number ten, I will give to priest the gift of touching the most hardened hearts. Number eleven, the names of those who promote this devotion will be written in my heart, never to be blotted out. Number twelve, I promise thee in the excessive mercy of my heart that my all-powerful love will grant to all those who receive Holy Communion on the first Friday of nine consecutive months the grace of final penitence. They shall not die in, my, in, in disgrace nor without receiving the sacraments. My divine heart shall be their safe refuge in the last moments. Keep in mind that promise number 12 that our Lord asks us to receive Him in Holy Communion in a state of grace on the first Friday of each nine consecutive months. We call this the First Friday Devotion. So the ninth, the ninth promise, incidentally, can help with the seventh and the eighth promise. Just as looking at a crucifix can remind you of the immense depth of God's love for us, so can looking at an image of our Lord in His Sacred Heart, such as the one above, which further personalizes that love for each one of us and for you in particular. St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, back in the 4th century, says, he said that God, who created us without our help, will not save us without our help. These promises that Jesus has given us in the Sacred Heart of Jesus' devotion reminds us that God's love for us is such that he doesn't want to lose any of us to Satan and perdition. God is a good shepherd, and he will search after his lost sheep. But we must want to be found. We must want to be found. When I look at the picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in my living room, his sacred heart ablaze with love and light, it's a source of great consolation after a hard day or during a trying time in this often loveless world. And remember, His love is not just for us sinners or for fallen humanity in the abstract, but His love is for you in particular. His love is for you in particular. And remember, if you have any serious sin on your soul, it's important to go to confession Receive absolution, the sacrament of penance. And this way you can start doing the nine First Friday devotions. But you must do these in a state of grace. Stick around. You don't want to miss what's up next. I'm going to be talking about what does it mean when somebody says, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Or, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Let's take a look at that phrase. 
We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. I remember I saw some uh, people from Calvary Chapel years ago. They had t-shirts and bumper stickers that said, I'm spiritual, not religious. Or uh, and other t-shirts that say, I have a relationship I'm not a religion. I'm not, I'm not part of a religion. So a lot of people, really, this whole, this whole issue about I'm spiritual, not religious, this really has its roots in the Protestant Reformation. And it's really taken off here in this country. Because, again, Protestantism and here in America, you know, people, they... They affirmed they affirmed their individualism, and so there's a Protestant by the, who's now a Catholic named Stephen Beale. He wrote a short article because he was part of that whole Protestant movement. I'm spiritual but not religious, and so he dismantles it. He writes the following. I'll make some comments when, when where it's relevant. He says, now more than a quarter of Americans identify as spiritual, but not religious, according to the latest survey from the Pew Research Center. This category claims a broad swath of American society, according to Pew, in almost equal numbers, white and black, Republicans and Democrats, millennials and boomers. Needless to say, being spiritual, but not religious is a deep-seated sentiment within the American psyche that anyone making the case for that old-time religion must overcome. In other words, as Catholics, you know, historically here in this country, people know that we're the largest religion. And we usually call ourselves, we usually say the Catholic religion or the Catholic faith. But for some Protestants, this, is, this seems to be a bad word, and I'll show you why they're wrong. But Stephen, Stephen Beale goes on to say, uh, you know everything he got here. He says he uh, he he got it from he res- he got it from a book. It's all laid out in a book, a new book by Tyler Blansky. It's called "How I Gave Up Spirituality for a Life of Religious Abundance." It was released by Ignatius Press a while back ago. So Tyler Blansky, a musician, poet, and Catholic writer from from Minnesota, was once. As spiritual as they come. Tyler Blansky's his spirituality was a product of his evangelical low church upbringing. When he was 12, he accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior while at, while at a church camp. For Tyler Blansky, the true faith meant opposing religion. So people who tried to follow religion had fallen for the false gospel of works righteousness contrary to the true way of salvation, which was by faith alone. And so Blansky thought as well. Blansky basically thought, like a lot of Protestants do, low church Protestants, low information, low church Protestants, they'll say, I can love Jesus without going to church. And Tyler Blansky held the same position. But from the very beginning, Tyler Blansky, this Protestant, who's now now Catholic, he questioned how his Protestant faith was presented to him. Did the Father really punish Jesus instead of us? That's what he was taught in his Protestant denomination. And is this an accurate picture of the life of the Trinity? Tyler Blansky asked himself, at an early age, Tyler Blansky began to sense that what he believed in his mind and professed with his mouth was at odds with his deepest longings. So Tyler Blansky, he scoffed at outward displays of piety, such as regular church attendance, but he simultaneously felt a yearning for all the outward trappings of religion, the priesthood, monasteries, frequent communion, and the daily office. You know, as I read about this guy, Tyler Blansky, this low church Protestant who became a Catholic, this story also reminds me of, of, of uh, Thomas Howard, rest in peace, 
He wrote a book, and his story is called Evangelical is Not Enough. And uh, obviously, they took the same journey. When you look at low church Protestantism, it's really the return to Gnosticism. In other words, we have special knowledge, we in the low church evangelical fundamentalist churches, all you guys are wrong, especially you Catholics, they'll say, you guys have a religion, but we have this, this information that nobody else has about how to be saved. So the tension between Tyler Blansky's attachment to spirituality and his longing for religion is what drives most of the story that he wrote in Immovable Feast. As Blanky's, as Blansky, Tyler Blansky is gradually transformed from a skeptic who dismissed Catholic teachings about the saints and the Eucharist as barnacles on the ship of a once pure early church to a liturgical conservative who silently scolded a new co-religionist at Mass for adopting the Iran's position. So yeah, Tyler Blansky went from one end, low church Protestantism, to the other opposite of spectrum, to Orthodox Catholicism. He writes, Blansky writes, With the benefit of hindsight, he's able to point, pinpoint the contradiction of the, at the heart of the spiritual but not religious mindset. Growing up, I thought the good news <coughs> was that I could have a personal relationship with Jesus without religion. I wanted the king, but not the kingdom. I wanted the head, but not the body. I wanted the vine, but not the branches. I wanted a culture, but not the cult of Jesus, Blansky writes. The journey into the kingdom is a slow one. There's no single moment in Tyler Blansky's book that is really a turning point. And in a way, that's the whole point. Evangelical Protestant spirituality promises the instantaneous conversion. The one and done prayer of accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, the flash of grace, and the lightning strike of faith that makes one saved. Of course, emphasis on the past tense in the sense of a completed once and for all event. Much of the value of this book is Blansky's description of what is wrong with such a, a low church Protestant spirituality. He says, I could see that my spirituality was woefully inadequate for the realities of a world east of Eden. Tyler Blansky's spirituality was a, whole, was a house divided. Protestantism is a house divided against itself. And he realized that not all the pieces fit together and that there were some missing. And for a time, rather than seeking clarity, Tyler Blansky embraced what he called a beautiful mess. The beautiful mess of Protestantism. Where there's 40,000 denominations. Tyler Blansky was also was also a, he admitted that his spirituality was impoverished. For those of us whose journeys into the Catholic Church passed through Anglicanism, his book is a wonderful insight into what a mess Anglicanism is. At Nashota House, the Anglican seminary in Wisconsin that Blansky attended, he recalls how the community was able to make peace among all warring factions within the Anglican communion. One anecdote is particularly telling the Anglo-Catholics on campus firmly believed in Mary's intercession. So three times a day the campus would pause for the Angelus, but the seminary had to find a way of doing this without offending those who scorned Marian devotion as idolatry. The solution was silence. The St. Michael bell rang out the Angelus, the students would stand, but everyone was silent. Silence was the via media, the middle road applied to Mary. Silence allowed for truth and lies to mix with discord, Blansky writes in the Anglican seminary. This was a typical approach to all divisive dogmas. All may, 
Some should, none must, was the mantra applied to such questions like whether one should go to confession or pray for the dead. As a result, the Anglicans held to just a few fundamentals. Tyler Blansky's bridge from, from such mere spirituality to the abundance of religion was the sacraments. This sets the stage for one of the great insights of his book. Man isn't only a political or social animal, as Aristotle declared, he's also a sacramental creature. Long before Tyler Blansky experienced the sacraments in a formal religious context, Tyler Blansky was unknowingly seeking them out. At an early age, he found sacramental fulfillment in nature at a resort where he worked. He said, as far as I was concerned, the Shekinah glory of God had condescended to dwell somewhere in the wild places of the north. And for me, the long drive to the resort was a kind of approach, an opportunity to come clean and to receive absolution from the pines before the moment of encounter. You can see already there that this young Protestant, Tyler Blansky, in his journey, he's being called by nature to a sacramental Christianity. Why? Because the Catechism says in paragraph 28, we are all religious beings. We are all religious beings. Tyler Blansky, his time at the Anglican Seminary, pursuing a vocation to the Anglican priesthood was, by the way, which we don't recognize as Catholics, in case you're wondering. But Tyler Blansky, as he pursued a vocation to the Protestant priest, uh, Anglican priesthood, as might be expected, his encounter with the Eucharist was particularly decisive. He said, I had been attending daily Mass, and the way I described the Eucharist back then was like a hammer. The Eucharist was like a medieval bludgeon to my heart, Blansky writes. We'll pick it up in the next segment, talking more about Tyler Blansky, his journey from low church Protestantism to Anglicanism to Catholicism. He realizes now that he's a religious being, as the Catechism says. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. I'm sharing a story with you about a Protestant, a low church Protestant, probably like Calvary Chapel, Victory Outreach. That, those are low church denominations. He begins studying more about Christianity. He moves into the Anglican, so he moves into height. It's called high church Protestantism. He becomes an Anglican. But then he begins studying the Holy Eucharist because, again, the Anglicans have some understanding of the Eucharist, not quite as developed as the Catholics, but they know that there's something very special there. So in seminary, he begins studying John chapter 6. He begins studying the Eucharist and he says, the Eucharist was like a hammer. The Eucharist was like a medieval bludgeon to my heart, Tyler Blansky writes. His marriage was another big step, not just in terms of marriage itself, but for the broader theological ramifications it held for Tyler Blansky. In his nuptials, he sees the marriage of heaven and earth in its own way. Their wedding told the story of the church as the mystical bride of Christ, united to Christ, the church is invited to participate in the eternal self-offering of love, the love of the Son that he makes to the Father. So Tyler Blansky, you can see he's getting a sacramental understanding of Christianity. His intellect is being purified by study. What he was doing, Blansky writes was a profoundly religious act, a religion in the sense of its Latin root, religere, which means to bind. That means to bind. So Tyler Blansky is saying that Jesus' self-offering to the Father was a religious act because the word religion means to bind. Jesus is binding 
us to the Father through his self-offering. It was the beginning of the end of his spirituality. A few more steps remained on his way into the Catholic Church, including a reckoning with the evils of, of artificial contraception, the reality of fatherhood, and the prophetic power and biblical basis for the papacy. Tyler Blansky's pathway to the church is, is studied with insights on the truth of the Catholic faith. For example, there is his explanation of how praise of Mary is oriented towards God. When someone admires any great artist, he lauds the artist's work of art. Submission or slavery to Christ is liberating in the same way that submission to a teacher and the discipline of learning the, fr the frets enables one to play the guitar freely. Love is more of a presence, not a proclamation. Tyler Blansky, this low church Protestant who became a high church Protestant, who now became a Catholic, he says that at his most eloquent in describing the vocations of fathers and mothers, fatherhood, he points out, is deeply connected with priesthood in the Old Testament. Women, he says, have always lifted the lids of their soup pots to share the aroma of holiness with a world that had lost its sense of smell. At one point early in the book, Tyler Blansky compares the spiritual but not religious attitude to someone who says they love music but they never sing. Think about that. I'm spiritual but not religious is tantamount to saying I love music but I never sing. It's great to be a fan or to have a nice record collection, but it's not enough. Tyler Blansky writes, If you want to be a saint, you have to sing. You have to do the work. So the book, The Immovable Feast, by Ignatius Prest, is Blansky's story of how he learned to sing. It's a love song to which we're all invited to join in. I'm spiritual but not religious. You've heard that from ex-Catholics, Protestants. Here's what I tell Protestants when they say, I'm spiritual but not religious. I say, did you know that, I say, you're, you're Christian, I'm Christian, right? You're a Protestant Christian, I'm a Catholic Christian. I say, did you know that Christianity is classified as a religion? Yeah. Christianity is classified as a religion. So how can it be bad? If you go to any public library and you look at the religion section, you're going to find in any public library or college or university, any almanac, encyclopedia, and dictionary, under religion you will find Christianity. It doesn't call Christianity spirituality. Under the section of spirituality, you'll find New Age. You know, crystals, chakras. You won't find Christianity under the spirituality section. But you will find, under the, Christi under the religion section of a public library or college, you'll find Christianity. It's a religion. I remember a couple years ago... In fact, let me just say that the Catholic faith is the first original church established by Jesus Christ himself. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation, probably about 10 years ago, with Manny Pacquiao. He's one of the greatest boxers. He's a charming person. He's a, a hero in the Philippines, his country. But he suffered from not knowing his Catholic faith, so he was easy pickings for Protestant fundamentalists to proselytize him. Whatever Christian religion the Pacquiao's ended up joining 10 years ago, they'll, they'll, they'll be jumping from one Protestant denomination to another. And remember, every Protestant denomination was established after Martin Luther broke off from the Catholic Church 
definitively in 1517. That's another historical fact. So all the Protestant churches come after 1571. Some just opened up last week, last month. Okay? Last year, six months ago. So Christianity is a religion. Now, Satanism is also a religion, by the way. Islam is a religion. Judaism is a religion. Buddhism is a religion. Now, the first one, Christianity, specifically Catholic Christianity, is a good religion. The second one I mentioned, Satanism, is a bad religion. And the rest that I mentioned are deficient religions that lack the fullness of truth. But the Bible actually uses the word religion to describe Christianity. In James chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. When somebody says, I'm, I'm, I have a relationship, but I'm not religious. Tell them, well, the Bible calls Christianity a religion. Jesus' cousin, James chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. The apostle writes, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James talks about Christianity as a good religion. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul talks about Christianity as a good religion. He says this, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul talks about Christianity as a good religion as well. In Titus chapter 1 verse 1, he says, Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's chosen ones, and the recognition of religious truth. So you see, the Holy Bible describes Christianity as a religion. In fact, as a good religion. What does the word religion mean? People don't, should not be afraid of that word. Webster's Dictionary tells us religion is a belief in a divine or superhuman power or powers to be obeyed and worshipped as the creator ruler of the universe. Expression in such a belief in conduct and ritual, belief in and reverence for a supernatural power or powers regarded as creator and governor of the universe. The word religion is not a bad word. It comes from the Latin word religio or religare, which means to bind, to tie, to fasten, like, like what a ligament does. Religare. That's where we get ligaments. Ligaments connect bone to bone and provide support and stabilization to the muscles and tendons as well. So religion means to bind or to tie us or connect us again to God. That's what it means. Religion is a means to reconnect with God. Because after man's fall, our relationship with God was broken and there needed to be a means to repair this fracture. Not all faiths are equal, but all people share equally in human dignity. A main thrust of the Holy Father's teaching, John Paul II, is to respect human dignity and religious liberty, but this can never be confused with suggesting that all religions are the same or equally true. I think a powerful image to help us understand this distinction is to think of the various religions as various toolboxes. I believe Catholics have the best set of tools, but that by no means suggests that the individual Catholics know how to use the tools that they, that, what they have been given. Here's another analogy. Think about the Catholic religion as being the center bullseye of a shooting target. The other concentric circles around the center circle are the various world religions, all of them containing various elements of truth, but as they move further away from the center, they contain less and less truth. Every Christian, be it a Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, agrees, agrees with this definition. Again, the word religion comes from the Latin word religio, which means to bind or to tie us, to tie oneself to God. Religion is a good term. Hey, 
Thanks for tuning in to the Terry and Jesse show. That's a wrap. Remember, do not be afraid. We serve the Virgin Most Powerful, a 12-star general. Pray the rosary every day. Read your Holy Bible every day. By doing so, you inflict pain and torment and drive demons away from you and your family. Let's continue to unite our prayers to the heel of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And let's unite our prayers to the sword of St. Michael the Archangel. And continue fighting against the of death until the Lord calls us home. See you next time. Same Christ time, same Christ channel. God bless you. Keep the faith. St. Faustina's Prayer for Priests O my Jesus, I beg thee on behalf of the whole Church, grant it love and the light of thy Spirit, and give power to the words of priests, so that hardened hearts might be brought to repentance and return to thee, O Lord. Lord, give us holy priests. Thou thyself maintain them in holiness. O divine and great High Priest, May the power of thy mercy accompany them everywhere and protect them from the devil's traps and snares, which are continually being set for the souls of priests. May the power of thy mercy, O Lord, shatter and bring to naught all that might tarnish the sanctity of priests. For thou canst do all things. Amen. Virgin Most Powerful, pray for us. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.